comes, it's Nashville Untold with Andrew Buckwalter, the podcast that interviews the most interesting and influential people making an impact on Nashville's business, charitable, and entertainment scenes. Joining us now from his roving camper studio, here's Andrew. Welcome to episode 48 of Nashville Untold, and thank you for tuning in. Today, I had the pleasure of hanging out with Jason Davis. He has spent his entire two-decade career in the music industry and worked with many worldwide stars, including Boys to Men, Sugar Ray, P. Diddy, Alabama, Lone Star, Dolly Parton, among many others. Davis is an entertainment industry executive with a broad range of titles, including award-winning songwriter, award-winning author, independent record label president, executive TV producer, entertainment consultant, former senior VP and A&R for Dolly Parton's management company, CTK Management, and a serial entrepreneur. He has also secured record deal offers with CEOs from the largest music companies in the world, including Capitol Records, Sony, Interscope, Island, Slash Def Jam, Epic, Atlantic, RCA, and J Records. Traveling between New York, London, Los Angeles, Miami, and Nashville, he built a reputation working with the top songwriters, producers, and recording artists in the entertainment industry on a global level. Over the span of his career, he has not only pioneered new approaches to the singing and development of some of the world's most successful recording artists and songwriters, but he has consistently championed innovative business models and partnerships with a wide range of companies around the world. His career began as a songwriter when he was discovered by Grant Cunningham, former VP of A&R for Sparrow Records. Davis went on to write a number one Billboard hit, received several ASCAP songwriter and publishing awards, and was nominated for a Latin Music Award. Davis has also co-founded other cutting-edge entertainment companies such as Radar Label Group, Jimmy Eat World, Plain White Tees, Neon Trees, The Unlikely Candidates, 117, Waken Records, Austin French, and Noble Management. He is also co-president and partner of booking agency, Higher Level Agency. So as you can see, um, he has a pretty extensive bio. So uh, the interview was pretty entertaining to get to hear a lot of his perspective from different aspects of the music industry. I uh, especially loved his uh, his transparency of when he was 13 and how literally Bon Jovi's music saved his life. And, and then he dove into some of the story of how um, Pour Some Sugar on Me was almost never sung, made, produced, whatever it's called. It was a great interview, and I know that you will enjoy it as well, getting some insight into the music industry. This interview was recorded in December of 2019, pre-COVID. Hopefully everybody is staying safe. If you are looking for a way to give back or volunteer during um, this time, uh, check out People Love in Nashville, Ryan Lampa. He is the, uh, the main guy there, and they are doing some awesome stuff there. He actually will be on the next episode. Um, so again, People Loving Nashville, check them out. And if you want to volunteer or give some financial assistance, um, I know they would be very thankful for that. And without further ado, here is the interview with Jason Davis. All right. Hello, Nashville. Welcome to Nashville Untold. Today I'm hanging out with Jason Davis. 
and uh, as you can tell from his bio, he has a lot going on and um, should have some interesting insight and wisdom in the music industry. So thanks for joining me in the Rambler, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. All right, Jason, let's start out with uh, what gets you excited to get out of bed and start the new day? It's a great question. Um, I, I think as I the longer I do this, it's just um, having the opportunity to serve people and you know care about people. Um, the idea that I've been fortunate enough over many years to be able to be in situations where I was used in a major way or a minor way to see people's dreams come true, and uh, to know that any day that that could happen, you know, it's it's always. You know, meeting the next singer, or that next song happening, and I think it's the um, partially the unknown that that right song could drop out of the sky that day, um, where I can meet, you know, um, an artist who uh, where I can have some sort of impact in their life, or mm -hmm. you know. So I think, you know, being used to impact a life or change a life or help a dream that somebody's had, you know, for their whole life, you know, start taking root. Um, is 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 what fuels me, and I, I also think, you know, being a part of songs that reach people. You know, uh, every once in a while, seeing those stories where somebody didn't kill themselves, or somebody's life changed, or somebody was just you know wrecked in in a way, or heart opened up because of a song that I was somehow a part of, or an artist I was somehow a part of, is uh, is is really the fuel. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you're saying songs impact people's lives? Uh, the the great ones do. Just a little bit. Excuse me. I always. Uh, Actually, sometimes the not so great they're, ones. They're, too. I mean, yeah. the, uh, songs. That's the cool thing that I love about them is um, they just they can take you way back. You yeah. Uh, P Diddy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Missing me, right? Mm -hmm. Takes me back to fraternity days, and I had a fraternity brother who was camping and ended up like waking up in the middle of the night to go use the restroom mm -hmm. and uh, walked off a cliff and died. Um, and so at the funeral, they played that song and it was popular at the time in college. And wow. that tore everybody up, you know? Wow. Um, so every time I hear that, it mm -hmm. makes me think of him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love music. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's start out going back to your earlier years. Talk to me about your first co-write with your neighbor, Jason. Why music at such an early age, and what did your family look like during those years? Wow, wow. So that first co-write with Jason, that was probably when I was no more than, I, I was probably around five years old. Um, he actually, I spoke to him not so long ago, a couple of years ago. We still somewhat keep in touch. Um, he actually remembers the chorus of the song. <laughs> He really, like, last time I talked to him, he's like, do you remember that song we wrote together? And I was like, I remember writing it. I don't remember the song. And, and he, he, like, sang me the chorus. Mm. And uh, I was probably five, and I think he was six. Um, and <coughs> music was just always there. Um, I, I feel like God planted that in me. I feel like that was his plan for my life to pursue, um, to then eventually reach back and try to help people with their dream. Um, but... Um, I remember being in that friend Jason's bedroom when I was around five, and he had vinyl album covers pinned on his wall. 
And I just and, how, and he was five as well. He was probably a year older. He was okay. like six, and I remember, uh, or maybe we were six or seven, you know. But it was right around there. And I remember he had this one album cover of Ozzy Osbourne, and I think it was like Diary of a Madman album cover. And I just remember seeing like Ozzy Osbourne on this album cover, and he was like dressed in this kind of theatrical outfit and he looked like he was playing the part of something and it just seems so mysterious to me and it seems so huge and um and i think you know i've just always I, I remember being a little kid sitting in front of my tv set watching like a little kid like probably around five watching kiss on television and oh. just seeing them like breathing fire and in costumes and it just seems so big yeah. Um, so th- th- those were the initial seeds. You know, and, and on that note, so I got a five-year-old, and when I ask him how his day was, he replies with, ah, poop, poop, like he loves the word poop. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, dude, you got to get more of a vocabulary, you know. But it'd be interesting just with TV and Amazon Prime and all these different you know, availability of shows like to kids and not just MTV and BT and you know those obviously they're still there but there's so many more options mm-hmm. you gotta wonder if that you know if that changes you know in the next 10 or 20 years will people not be as inundated like you saw it mm-hmm. you know um, how much of an impact did that make mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. like versus you know what kids are watching now yeah. I wonder if that'll be a any factor in the years to come yeah I mean I, I do think how technology has grown um obviously there's so many benefits to artists and musicians that were not there when i was growing up but i do think that um the phone and technology and video games becoming huge and i just think all the distractions the art i think just overall as a society and culture um we're a little bit less um creative than we were Mm um not to go too far down a rabbit hole here but several years ago i had to go to um the uk for just a short business trip to meet actually a couple of producers uh music producers and um i had never been to paris so i was like i'm not gonna be two hours away from paris and not go and so i went and uh i went to into the louvre and just even seeing the art that used to be created and seeing how they used to make buildings and you know and here in America, like we're putting up buildings with like plywood, right? You know? right. And, and they used to be like hand carved stone, and so I just I I do see, um, you know, not as much creativity as mm-hmm. there probably was when I was growing up as a kid. Um, but I do think you know a lot of the great great songwriters are still present. You know, from maybe when I was a kid mm-hmm. um, or, or a little bit older, and uh, you're seeing how this younger generation of artists coming up needs them and probably even a little bit more mm-hmm. than that young artist needed them 20 years ago um so how was the uh your family life at that age did you have parents that were into music or was it just something that you just jumped into uh, uh my dad played a little guitar as a kid he was in, in I think, a band for a very short time as a kid, totally amateur. Um, so my dad had a pretty big record collection. So I remember being, you know, uh, around seven and ten years old, 
and I would I just started getting really into at that age going downstairs alone and I'd flip through his record collection you know I asked his permission if I was allowed to use the he never used it and uh, I would put on records and lay my little body down on the floor and put on headphones and I would just like lay down on the floor and like listen to his albums Mm -hmm. and I just remember being fascinated by um, not only how good the music was but also it made me feel closer to my dad Mm. you know and it made me feel very warm when I would listen to records and I felt like I was getting a peek into something that he Mm -hmm. liked Mm -hmm. Um, and it made me feel like I understood my dad better you know so it was interesting how that that did that yeah Yeah. Um, All right. so during your teen years what memories do a cassette tape a Walkman and five dollars conjure up that's me um, uh, every single day I mean I would say the last two years of my high school years um, my entire existence was focused on making and selling albums so um i would spend the summers off of school writing and recording um every single day all day long um so i'd spend two months and i would every day work on making a record and my goal would be to have it finished before the start of school year and then i would sit there uh during the school year every night i would get my homework done and every night i would spend a few hours um, with the dual cassette player mm-hmm. with the red button and I would put in a blank cassette on one side my master recording mm-hmm. which was just a cassette that I had recorded it on and I would dub one side flip it dub the other side flip it I write on the sticky things that you can put on the cassettes yeah. on each side the name of my band the name of the album stick it perfectly on each side I would then I had sheets I, I designed an album cover and um, I brought it to a printer. And back then, at least that printer I went to, could not pr- cut things to fit perfectly into a cassette tape holder. Mm-hmm. So I had just piles of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheets of um, a few of the album covers on each big sheet. And I would every night take a, um, a razor blade ruler, cut out you know really meticulously, and then I'd have to like fold everything perfectly to get it to fit into the cassette stuff them throw them in my backpack and i would go to school and my um goal was the second the bell rang in every class would be to make it as quickly as possible to my next class for each class and i had a walkman and i would wait for kids to walk in and and every kid that would walk into class um i would say hey um this, my band has a new record like would you want to hear some of it and they'd say sure I'd be like I, can I put and I'd hand them the headphones from the Walkman they'd listen I, I would know about how long until right, the first right. chorus was over I would stop it and they'd take it off I'd be like, and I'd be like what do you think and they'd say oh, I like it I said well I'm selling them for five dollars do you want one and um, and I, I did that like every single day of my junior and senior year in high school so what uh, the preteen years what were you into were you always into music or did you do some sports or um i played a little sports but i was never great at really any sport um everything was always music for me i mean i lived breathed ate music since i could 
you know, my first memories were carrying around. Uh, I used to have a little plastic um, Mickey Mouse guitar mm-hmm. that from Disney that my parents got me, and I would carry I would carry it around the house. I'd bring it to the dinner table. Um, I remember, like, as a little, little, little kid, I would refuse to eat dinner unless I was, unless I was able to bring my so that was Mickey like Mouse. Blankie. Mickey yeah. Mouse, yeah, I brought my Mickey Mouse guitar everywhere with me, and um, my parents got me. I begged them for uh, probably, I'm guessing three, four, something, maybe mm-hmm. five. I begged them. I think five six i begged them for a drum set and so i like a little plastic drum set in my bedroom and uh it was always music it's yeah. funny because i have a, a friend that i graduated with and she has twins and the one of her son is he's probably six maybe now or seven and i mean like you could just tell from facebook he's infatuated with baseball like he's got the glove mm-hmm. i mean he is and mm-hmm. you know i sit there i'm like he's gotta be Something's there. Yeah, something's there. Yeah, I know because it's just like, and you know, I don't think either one of them were. You know, I'm sure they encouraged. Yeah. Like, for, oh, you want to play a sport? Okay, but not like. Not that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, it is. Mm. And I think back to when I was a kid. Like I loved cars. I still love cars. Mm. And I drive too aggressive. I would love a sports car for like a Porsche mm. pass me today, and you know, and I'll, I'll always still wonder. I'm like, man if I would have pursued like racing mm. or, you know something like would that did I miss out on a calling mm. you know I don't know supposedly racing is crazy expensive to get well, into well that's yeah my wife finally said I, I, I don't know if I just kept talking about it. I need to be a race car and she's like mm. she kind of gave me the okay to like just look at it mm-hmm. um, and it was either one you got to start really early mm-hmm. or two you got to have a lot of money yeah, I was like, like okay I, that's not happening I mean I, I've heard millions yeah. like yeah but one other note that I think is is a good note um, that I don't know if I've ever really shared before is when I was a kid, like before my teen years and into my teen years, I used to drive my family nuts. Like, I mean, all I would do is listen to music. All I would do is play music. Like, I, would, I wouldn't talk about anything but music. Like, I was wondering if there was some OCD in there yeah, with the music. Yeah, I mean, like, and my family was just like, you know, please, like, stop with the music. Like, stop playing. Like, everything was like, be quiet, you know? And, and like, uh, the only conversations I would have were about my favorite bands. Like, I'd, I'd want to talk to my dad about my favorite bands. And if he didn't want to talk about my favorite bands, I'd be upset. And when we were on long any car trip we took as as a kid even if it was like an hour to visit grandparents like i would beg and plead the whole time that they would play my cassettes you know and they would my parents would like finally cave in and they pop in like the the kiss album mm-hmm. and I, you know like they were just being tortured in the car ride and you know and, and then when they would pop it out after like one song like right. okay honey we played your we played your thing and i'd be like so sad because i knew when they would pop it out that they didn't like it mm. and and all i wanted to do was to share my music you know and connect with them right so i i, I my my poor 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 sister yeah yeah i had to go through that <laughs> yeah yeah all right um so what music was influencing you in- what music was influencing you in high school and what was on your mind as you were counting down the days until graduating from marble high school mm. wow I'd heard that Marble High School in a while. Um, well, I will. I will say this. You know, 
I, and I always tell artists, I always ask artists when I meet artists, like, what were your parents listening to before you chose music? You know, because if you think about it, when you're in a house and your mom or dad listen to something, it's it's going into your ears and it's going into your soul and your spirit. And you don't even know that it's, it's being digested. Mm-hmm. So usually um, most artists think their teen years is where they're that that starts defining them um that's what i like that's what i liked as a teen that was my first favorite band but it's actually what your parents were listening to um probably combined with what you chose as a teen right is probably what's in the crock pot and what 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 is is definitely a part of what's going to come out of you um so i guess that depends on how much you're with your parents and they're listening to music right right right. that is true yeah so for for me you know as a kid you know my dad was like the beatles linda ronstan neil diamond kenny rogers dolly parton um and you know that that kind of organic real instruments it's commercial little bit of pop but not really like real instruments and then in um, the first artist that I chose was Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was ten, his Thriller album, like Nuclear, exploded onto planet Earth, biggest selling album of all time. Mm-hmm. Happened when I was ten, so I lived, breathed, ate, slept Michael Jackson for a few, uh, two and two and a half to three years. Mm-hmm. You drink Pepsi too. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I'll never forget, I had a poster of Michael Jackson in my bedroom. And one of my first cousins, who was an older girl, she was older than me. She is older than me. One of my first cousins came into my bedroom when I was 12. And she, when I wasn't in the bedroom, we, we were very close. They were always over our house and vice versa. She went into my bedroom with a marker and and drew a mustache on michael jackson on my poster and i walked into my bedroom and i literally broke down crying like um and uh, hey, this was when you were a senior in high school <laughs> no no <laughs> it's probably when i was like 10 okay um but uh, so it was michael jackson and then it went to david lee roth um that was my next favorite um that was the first concert i ever went to my parents took me to a david lee roth concert and my brains exploded mm-hmm. um and uh, and then after David Lee Roth, it was Def Leppard, mm-hmm. and Def Def Leppard's Hysteria album. So when I, I got to ask, how old are you? I'm 13. Oh, now, now I'm yeah. 45 now. Okay, so I'm 43. So we're yeah. in the same. Yeah. So Def Leppard's Hysteria record actually like saved my life. Mm. Um, I literally did not kill myself because of that album. Really. Um, and um, now, what was? Why were you at that place with music? I was just, you know, getting, uh, and my dad was a really great guy. Like he loved me. He was a sweetheart. Um, so much love in him, but he grew up in really bad, mm-hmm. bad circumstances. He didn't know God within a mile, and um, so he had been abandoned when he was sixteen by his parents mm-hmm. and had a real rough go at it. Um, became successful. And I think, you know, internally his thing was like, that's not going to happen to my kid. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so my parents were fighting a lot. I don't think my dad was able to comprehend why my grades were slipping. I wasn't able to comprehend why my grades were slipping. It was because they were fighting a lot. And mm-hmm. I would hear him screaming at her and like regularly. And so he would always ask me, like, why are your grades slipping? And I would say, I don't know. And he would say, I don't know. It's not an answer. Mm-hmm. And so at 13, he started beating me. Mm-hmm pretty violently and that lasted for uh close to three years wow. and it was um 
it was uh, a very very torturous wow. torturous time and I was I was you know he used to tell me he was going to kill me and I it was real I mean I believed him and um, so I, I was very petrified mm-hmm. um, I wanted to escape very badly when you're 13 you can't really go up to your male friends at 13 because right. then you'll be like a loser and they'll pick on you um, I couldn't go to a girl at 13 because she would I thought I was a loser, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and, um, and you can't go to an adult because your dad will end up in jail, or he'll kill you. Um, so I I really couldn't talk to anybody about it. Wow. Um, so God used Def Leppard without me knowing God. God mm-hmm. used Def Leppard as like the only ounce of joy and the only ounce of happiness that I could find on earth, and I just held on to it for dear life and. I um, spent every waking moment thinking about Def Leppard, um, daydreaming about Def Leppard. Um, what was yeah. the what was kind of the meat of their? I mean, I listened to it, but when mm-hmm. I grew up, I was more into the music, not the lyrics. Yeah, like I I could listen to everything, and I still love a good bass song, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, what was the kind of the meat of their music, their lyrics? You know, <clears throat> that was touching to you. That kind of kept you going. I think. <laughs> Lyrically, I didn't really understand what they their songs were about. Okay. Um, their songs were actually very lyrically artistic, um, but they were like basically like you know very like relationship and sexually based. Mm-hmm. You know, like like a like male any, a male rock right. band. Um, they had a song called "Love Bites," which was about you know getting cheated on. They had a song "Pour Some Sugar on Me," which was about yeah, having yeah, sex with a girl. But as a teenage, okay. <laughs> as a as a thirteen, fourteen year old boy, I just heard "Pour Some Sugar on Me." Right. I had no idea what that means, but yeah. I just thought it was like kind of really cool. Yeah. And the production and the vocals and the songwriting, it was just so catchy and hooky and. So it was and, just the music itself. Yeah, and it was so big lyric, sounding. Yeah. But what's really yeah, inter- relaxing what, coming to you? Yeah, what's really interesting is like that band still to this day, like they don't they don't know the Lord at all. I've met them mm-hmm. and talked to them a little bit. They don't know the Lord at all. Um, I didn't know the Lord at all. Mm-hmm. My family didn't know the Lord at all. But this record, this one album, I ha- I hung on like I was drowning in an ocean by myself, and I hung on like a lifeline, and it saved my life. And I, um, the beginning of the album, which I'm sure they are completely blind to as a band, but the very first three lines of that album, which God showed me just a couple of years ago as an adult i popped it in one day and felt 13 again and and god was like hit the pause button go back and listen to the first three lines what are the first three lines saying and i whipped out the lyric sheet Mm -hmm. the first three lines of that album are the very first three lines of the bible oh really wow and um and god was like it was me the whole time that saved you Mm -hmm. and uh, i was just like what like that like they're singing songs about right. like, sex, like right. you know, and uh, well, so. Well, like I had a lot of that in the Bible as well. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, but the f- the first three lines of that record are like, "In the beginning, God made the land mm. that He made." I mean, it's just. But then it turns, right. and it's all about females right. that God made females and how amazing they are, <laughs> which um, is true. Right, right. Um, but so, um, yeah. So, uh, and, and and I will say this, you know. There was one, and God has used this greatly in my life, this next thing. But there was one night when I was 13, I was just so tortured, and I was just such a wreck. And I, I wanted 
so badly to escape. And I had tried to run away two different times. One, I just ran out my front door and I started running. And I was like, where, where am I running to? And then the next time I ran away to a friend's house and the parents called my my parents and were like, what are you guys doing? Like, wow. your son is here hiding out in our house. Like, get it together. Like, And um, my mom got on the phone with me and promised me that my dad said that if I return home, he would not mm. touch me. Yeah. And so I, because I, I was scared to go back and I went back and... There was one night where I went downstairs in my parents' kitchen, and they had a lot of, like, pills in, in one cabinet. You know, all kinds of, like, you know, aspirin and Tylenol and probably some, like, sleeping, you know, help sleep help pills or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, all kinds of different pills. But they had a lot of them in a cabinet. And I went down there in the middle of the night. Everybody was sleeping. And I took out all the pill bottles, and I put them on the uh, kitchen counter. And I stared down at the pill bottles, and I and I felt scared, but I I said you know I'm I'm going to do it, and it was the first time in my life, and I did not know this at the time. I thought they were just thoughts in my head, but later on God showed me that um, that it was basically the first time that I heard Satan's voice in my head, and it was the first time I heard God's voice in my head. But I was staring at the pill bottles, and uh, I said I'm going to do it. And as soon as I said that, I heard a voice in my head, but it was really like. At the time, it was like I thought this in my head. I heard, I heard in my head, um, you know, if I take the pills, I heard actually it was you. I heard if you take the pills, you'll escape, and that was Satan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was like, yeah, I want to escape. And then a second later, I heard if you take the pills, you'll never be able to listen to Def Leppard again. Mm. That's crazy. And obviously that was god yeah and god used like god knew what a 13 year old boy had to hear right to put the pills away and i literally put the pills away because i couldn't bear the idea of not being able to listen to def leppard right and i and 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 me loving this record that and by the way that record took almost four years to make Mm. back then in in modern money that record took about cost about twenty million dollars to record. Mm. Um, wow. It was the most expensive record that had ever been made at that point. Um, it was one of the longest records to make at that point. Mutt Lang, the producer of that record, took nine months to mix it. At one point, the record label and I studied this record mm-hmm. front right. and back for years. But at one point, they had been working on the record for three years. The record label calls up the band. Mutt Lang, the producer, had not let the record company barely hear anything. And they're like, we're hemorrhaging money. We're spending millions of dollars. The band at this point would have had to have sold five million records just to break even. And the record label's like, we're shutting this down. Like, we're not, you know. But they told the band and the management first. And the band was like, he's crazy. Like, he won't stop. He, like, always is saying we need another song. Mm. And um, so the band and management kind of came together and said, okay, if Mutt Lang says he wants to record anything new, we're going to basically have an intervention. We're going to sit him down and say, Mutt, the record's over. And um, so Mutt came, came in the studio one day, the singer's playing something on his guitar. Mutt Lang says, what is that? And the singer's like, it's this little thing I came up with. And he's like, that's the best hook I've heard in the last 10 years. We're recording that. 
And so they, a few minutes later, they sit him down. They get management on the phone, and everybody sitting cornered him in the in his studio and said, "Mutt, it's over. Like we're not recording anything else." And the and the record label was on. Actually, the record label was on the phone. The management was on the phone, and the band was in the studio with him. And he said to the band management record label, he goes, "Well, here's the deal. Um, if I don't record this song, nobody gets to master recordings. They're on. They're on. They're on. Basically, like my hard drive. You could sue me if you want, but nobody gets the recordings until we record this song. Sorry. And everybody kind of shut up. Okay, Mutt. You know, we're not going to sue you. Like, Gary gets off the phone. He goes, it looks at the band. We're recording this song. And they record the song. The song was Portion of Sugar on Me. Mm. Um, the record label put out the first single on that album, which is called Woman, w- Women. That song bombed at radio. They put out the next song, which is called Animal. Um, the song bombed at radio. And internally, the record label is like, we have to drop the band. I mean, th- this band has just cost us a literal fortune. Like, we've lost a fortune. Now, Mott, what's the guy's name? Mutt Lang, the producer. So, was he? did that <clears throat> have anything to do with Motley Crue? Because the name's coming. No, no, okay, no. it just happened. Yeah. And uh, so, um, the label calls up Mutt Lang, the producer, and says, hey, we're dropping the band. And he freaks out on the label, says, you guys are idiots like you're missing it i told you it was pour some sugar on me it's, it's the best hook i've heard in years i know you're having to drink money you got to trust me on this so they send pour some sugar on me to radio after two bombs in a row and the song literally within weeks <laughs> explodes like a nuclear bomb hit radio stations wow, and, and they start selling a million records a week of oh, the album goodness. and it's one of the top 30 biggest selling albums of all time to this day and the band is going I mean the, the band tours every year their minimum guarantee is $350,000 a night um, that record came out 30 years ago they're doing a summer tour where they're getting uh, their guarantee is a million dollars a night and this band hasn't had a hit in close to 30 years and it's through the torturing of that record so right. God, God used all of that yeah to show me, number one, Jason, you know music can sa- great music can save a life. Right. You're, you know it because it saved yours. Torturing a record can save a life. Um, going against people who want to stop a process can save a life. Right. And I want you to use all that and, and do your best with the time you have left on this earth to try to make music that can reach that next teenager yeah um so th- that's you know i know it's long yeah but, that's yeah that's that's crazy yeah. yeah definitely didn't know that story yeah um so did you go to college after high school or did you just go into music my parents told me i had to go to college but they were you know divorcing mm-hmm. and they weren't paying for it but they told me i had to go mm-hmm. so i had a little bit of money saved from my jobs i worked <laughs> and so <laughs> they're not paying and they said you still have to go that's yeah crazy. so i i you know, I registered for a local community college, okay. and I I think I forget how much it cost to, for the first set of classes for mm-hmm. a semester, but I think it was really cheap. I think it was like a couple thousand dollars. Right. Sounds right. And so I spent a couple thousand dollars. I show up at this class. I don't even want to be there. And um, the teacher, the very first class I ever went to, says, "Hey, this is not like high school. I'm not going to baby you. I don't take attendance. I teach. You're here. You're not here." I hand out tests. You pass or fail the tests, and I and I received that as like, wait, this guy's not going to take attendance. I don't have to be here. Like, why would I ever come back? <laughs> right. 
right. So I, I I walked out the door after my first class of college after 45 minutes and said, well, if he's not taking attendance, I'm never coming back here. And uh, never went back. So. It's hilarious, and your yeah. parents never cared at that. Well, they, they weren't thrilled, but I was right. like, "Well, guys, you're not paying for it, right?" You know, so. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's just funny because as I've interviewed entrepreneurs, and you know, even I think about my boys and just how college and stuff's changing. Um, and obviously, I could have gotten to real estate with not a college degree. Um, it's always interesting, you know, to hear people's story in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that's going to change, I think, over the years too. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not even set on like going. Okay, my kid must go to school. Right. You know? um, that's funny. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. So, what kind of support system did you have as you pursued all those music endeavors? Um, we we'll probably talked about. This. Well, maybe not. Did people think you were crazy? Um, was your family cheering you on? Like at some point, did they flip, or were you always like, "Oh my gosh"? And no, I mean, the, the, nobody ever thought that I would have an ounce of success doing this. Um, everybody kind of thought, you know, I was a dreamer, and you know, I, I um, that it was a hobby. Mm-hmm. And um, th- there was no—I mean, I, even as a kid, I wanted guitar lessons, and my parents were like, "Why are you going to take guitar lessons? Like, we're not paying for guitar lessons." Or I wanted vocal lessons. I begged them for vocal lessons. Um, they put me in one vocal lesson, and then afterwards, they told me that the vocal coach said that I didn't have a good voice. And so they weren't going to put me back. Uh, so um, it was an uphill battle the whole time. Mm-hmm. Even when I got my own money as a teenager, my dad wouldn't let me spend it. And I really wanted to get a guitar badly. Um, so uh, my cousin was throwing out a guitar, which helped me get a guitar. So everything was kind of this uphill struggle. But I will say that when it came to getting into the business, there was a few key moments that I definitely got some sort of financial help. The first was, and this was indirect, but I had a, a kid that I went to high school with. Um, wasn't a very nice kid, but his parents were unbelievably supportive of him musically. And so, like with my parents, I'd be like, "Mom, Dad, I have, I found, I saw a two hundred dollar guitar. I want. It's my money. I could buy it, please." And they would say, "No, you keep it in the bank." I would be over his house. And he would have this thing called an ADAT, which was like a recorder, you know, and the ADAT would break. And, and, and he would open up his little studio door in his parents' house. And we were teenagers in high school. And he'd be like, Mom, come down here. She'd come down. What's up? What's wrong, honey? Like, Mom, the ADAT broke again. And she'd be like, oh, honey, can you fix it? No, Mom, what broke you can't fix. Like, well, how much is it, honey? It's like $6,000, Mom. She'd be like, okay, well, d- don't worry, honey. It's going to be okay. Like, let me get the card, credit card. Just put it on the credit card. And I'd be like, put it on the credit $6,000? Like, just like <laughs> yeah, that? Like, I mean, it was... Co- was he the only kid? Yes. And so, like, I mean, I watched over four years of high school. That family spent probably in the neighborhood of $300,000. Wow. You know, maybe not 300000 in high school, but it was... It could not have been less than $100,000 in high school. You know, just buying gear, buying equipment, building the studio, you know, insulating the studio, building a sound booth in their house, like all for their son. And uh, I benefited from that, you know, because I was always over his house writing and recording songs. And he wasn't as good of a songwriter. I was a pretty good songwriter. I had no idea how to record stuff. He knew how to record the stuff. And he was a little like a normal kid, mm-hmm. just didn't push boundaries and not lazy, but just 
didn't push himself Mm -hmm. and so i was in the studio saying like i think we get a better drum sound than that and you know he'd be frustrated and i'd be like let's go through your drum sounds and i i mean i would make him sit there for two hours with him turning purple and i'd say it's not good enough that's not good enough that's not good enough and i would push him to get recordings that he wasn't getting on his own Mm -hmm. and um you know uh so i benefited from that studio his parents spending tons of money on that studio and then um i got to a point where i realized event like this doors cracked open for me in music and i realized i needed to have an office mm-hmm. and i was living in new jersey and if the way new jersey is if you are not working in new york city everybody that works in new york city in the music industry does not take you seriously mm-hmm. so i was like i have to have an office in new york city if if the record labels and the people in the business are going to take me seriously and i'll never forget first time i got an office in new york city i messaged this guy at zombo publishing who was courting me for a publishing deal and he goes he goes where are you located and i told him the office address in new york city and he goes is that that building like and i said yeah it's that building he goes that's impressive man like wow okay like you're for real and so i knew i needed to have that perception in new york city and i needed um i think back then i needed like and this is like 20 years ago mm-hmm. i think i needed like 13 grand or something like that or 16 mm-hmm. grand and uh my my parents you know were really resistant and um and it was actually that friend, you know, wasn't a very good friend, but his parents were really cool to me, but he, he could be a little mean sometimes. But his parents actually sat me down and were like, you know, honey, like, and, you know, you know maybe like 20. Okay. And the mom would be like, honey, like, because I've been there for years in that house, you know, so you're really like trying to get an office in New York City. I'd be like, yeah, but I need a co-signer and my family won't co-sign for me. And... And she'd be like, we believe in you. Like, we'll co-sign you. And I think what they saw, looking back, was this is like our son's, like, mm-hmm. right-hand person. Mm-hmm. We help, Like, this, this guy, this kid is going somewhere. Like, we should help him go somewhere because he's going to take our son. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and I'll never forget, his mom sat me down once. And this is the first time anybody had ever looked at me with confidence. And it, it changed my life. But... I, I never had any confidence because of what I went through as a kid. And so his mom sits me down in their house at the kitchen table and says, Jason, like almost like pointing at me, like, I see a hugely successful businessman in you. Like, you are going to be a hugely successful businessman one day. And I was like, really? Like, And I couldn't believe somebody saw that in me. And uh, so I think they were like, we're going to support him. He's very loyal to our son. Like this, our son's probably not going anywhere, but this kid is. And that's what happened. I just started pounding the pavement and I literally brought their son along with me. Mm-hmm. And every project I did, all my early songs that got cut on albums, I would put their son's name on the song and give him 50% of the song. Nice. Um, now, did your parents have money at the time to support you? Yes, but they were unsupportive. Um, it's so and, scary to hear you. Yeah. Because having three boys. And you know, and they're still twelve, yeah. nine, and five. Yeah, and just hearing the impact of you know yeah. the encouragement and the I mean, you know, yeah. it's just oh, it's yeah. so crazy at that yeah. young age how it, it how much of a effect we can have on our kids. That's why yeah. I've, I've said I'm like 
um, you know, our biggest mission field is within these walls, right. which is quite sad at times because those are the, the times when we let our um, guards down yep. and we, you know, mm-hmm. speak as we don't in public mm-hmm. because we're not as judged, but yet the reality of how much of an impact are they hearing and making, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's interesting about that ex, you know, kid I hung out with in high school and stuff that mm-hmm. I, t- you know, again, his parents did a lot for me. I'll never forget it. But um, still to this day, he's never written a hit song in his life and he's never really done anything musically that's really even close to good. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't mean that mean. I'm just right. calling it like it is. But still to this day, he, he has a studio on his parents' property mm. oh, wow. that people visit. And he always tells everybody that he meets that he's, you know, um, an award-winning, ASCAP award-winning songwriter. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> but, but God you know, uses yes, him. Totally. You know, and has. Totally. Him, so that's pretty crazy. Totally. So. Um, all right. So uh, what was the impact of one song traveling 1,400 miles via cassette tape being captured by a record label? Uh, I would not be sitting here if that had not happened. Um, I think probably. Um, I I don't even know if I would have survived in life. Um, but I would be... Um, I believe that I would be in extreme poverty. Um, I believe that I would have had a life of intense, intense suffering. Um, I don't believe I would have ever found God. Um, you know, people like Jesse would not be in my life. Um, and you know, because before that happened, my life was like, kind of like a train wreck. Um, I had been evicted at, this hap that phone call came when I was 23. Okay. So at 23, I had been evicted from five apartments. Um, I could barely get another apartment. Um, I was renting a room in a woman's house, a bedroom in a woman's house for like $200 a month. And it turned out she was a drug addict and she was like hitting on me all the time and beating her kids late at night. And I mean, you know, and I was living in, in a woman's bedroom and it was a small bedroom with my cat. So Did you still have the office? Uh, I'm sorry? Did you still have the office at that time? Uh, man, no, I'm sorry. Sorry, this is before... Okay. I got this is before the phone call came that I got into the music industry. Okay. So that's a picture of where I was at before that phone call. And then, you know, probably five years later, I'm like living in Los Angeles, like, you know, doing really well. And Mm -hmm. my life had totally, I mean, it was a massive change. I mean, character wise, spiritually, I was still very lost. Mm -hmm. But um, monetarily, it it turned my life around. And eventually, that phone call planted the seeds. That would eventually be watered, and I'd get saved. So, so captured was that a what? What was it? Country or was it? It's a Christian okay, song, Christian which song. is crazy because I was a Jewish atheist at okay. the time. So, um, but I was writing songs like I was hiking every day, trying to become a better songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had this routine where I, right around that time, I, and before the phone call came, I, I realized I was trying to become my dad in life. Mm-hmm. At twenty two, it wasn't working. What'd your dad do? He was like a. Uh, you know, senior vice president of technology for big corporations. Like he would like kind of run technology, like oversee technology for like major corporations, like 
oversee it for like the country or gotcha. like I mean he was a big you know pr- pretty high level guy yeah. um, with no college education Which if, if you lived in Nashville and you had that desire for music that could have been a different story from a support system sure right? sure but maybe up north yeah it was foreign <laughs> yeah and my dad was not an entrepreneur he worked for a corporate company and mm. he's like that's that's how you make it in life right. you right. work your butt off and so I got to a point where I, at 22 I realized life was not working um, if you get evicted from five apartments you you don't have to be that smart to figure out life's not working so um, I was like I gotta figure out like who am I why, why am I here what's my purpose what, what am I passionate about so I, I, I quit my job I had just enough money to live for about five to six months I didn't care. Uh, like I didn't care if I ran. Out of money. I didn't care what what happened. I didn't care if I became homeless. Like I was just like I got to figure this out. I quit my job. I had about five or six m- months of money in the bank. If I lived unbelievably frug- frugally, and I said what I'm going to do is I'm going to hike every day, um, and uh, I'm just going to try to figure out who I am and what I'm supposed to do with my life and what job I'm supposed to have because I don't like my job. So I'd hike about two to four hours a day, every single day, seven days a week. I'd come, rain, snow, sh- like no matter what the conditions were, I would go out in, into the woods for two to four hours a day. I would come home and I would spend the rest of the night. Um, and, oh, and then I would read like really deep books for like an hour. Um, and like, you know, Walden's Pond and things like that. And then I, and then I would spend the rest of the night writing songs. And um, I did that every single day for months before that phone call came. And, um, you know, everything was pointing towards music, but I didn't think that that was realistic until the phone call happened, you know, so. Huh, kind of let go and yeah. then it took off Yeah, and, and Yeah, and interesting, right around that time, right before the phone call came, I had my first time ever in life where I asked God if he was real. And uh, it was literally a few weeks before that phone call came. I was sitting on a clifftop, glorious clifftop. And I remember for the first time in my life, I looked up at the sky and I almost felt like God was staring at me. And it, it was like the Wizard of Oz and he was like right behind the sky. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at the sky. I was like, like are, are, are you real? Like, and, and if you are, like, I want to know you. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I know you? And uh, I didn't get saved. I didn't find Jesus until about you know 10 10 years later um but it's interesting because there's scripture that talks about you know just that yeah nature yeah yeah and um but i asked that i i really felt like for the first time i was seeing i knew that god God was looking at me like like, who are you like Mm -hmm. i'm just looking at a sky right now but i feel you and and um within weeks like i get this crazy random phone call from a record label saying my song landed on their desk and next thing you know i uh within a few months after that i have like a number one hit on the radio so i mean it was just crazy so that's awesome all right so uh shout out favorite restaurant favorite local restaurant favorite nonprofit. wow um probably gonna sound like i'm older here but like my favorite restaurant is probably jay alexander's in franklin the cool springs franklin Uh, area i just ate there last week yeah Yeah. i i I don't know i just i really like it um and then uh i love um uh i love the ministry i really heard about them through jesse actually um tennessee kids belong i i think you know what they're doing is just really beautiful um i've gone on their website and looked at some videos of you know 
young kids or even like some teens that have never had a mom and dad and or you know they're on camera saying like my ultimate dream in life is to have a family one day and have a mom and dad that love me and so it's you know it seems like what they do is take the kids that haven't been adopted or almost like the leftover kids mm -hmm. that like are less desirable or don't look as cute or whatever right, and right. uh which is pretty incredible um so that's my favorite okay all right so influence is defined as the capacity to have an effect on the character development or behavior of someone or something who would fall into this category for you and why like the number one influence one two um i mean i would say like there's definitely things from my dad from a business perspective that I learned along the way. There's a couple of sentences he said along my way that I still hold on to mm -hmm. that were very smart. Um, I think my probably the number one influence besides God, it was my grandpa on my mom's side. My grandpa was an entrepreneur. He, uh, when I was a kid, he had the number one barber shop in Brooklyn. And uh, summers, I used to stay at his house um, for at least a month every summer. And um, I just looked so far to going to work with him. And he would like teach me how to work the cash register and teach me how to sweep hair. And mm -hmm. um, and it, I, it was really interesting because he had a car. They had a car. And he lived a few miles from his barber shop. And he walked to, he walked to and from work every single day no matter what the conditions were and it could be freezing out it could be pouring outside there could be snow on the ground he would always walk to work and um and uh i i remember being a, and he would wake me up at like literally like five in the morning every morning but it was like sweet you know my grandpa would wake me up come on we're going to work and i'd walk with him and he would tell me these like silly little stories that i believed every one of them and but um, I, I'll never forget one time we were walking, it, probably one of the first times we did it. I said, Grandpa, like, why are we walking? You have a car. Because my parents drove everywhere. And he goes, you know, walking's good for you. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's good for your mind and it's good for. And, I, and, and really what he was showing me was like, Jason, I am a worker. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't do things the easy way like I grind it out and and uh, so we would walk through pouring rain through snow on the ground it would be slush everywhere we'd be getting dirty and we would go to his barbershop and he'd work all day long and we'd walk back like sometimes it was dark out we'd be walking back and um, and it was it was not a short walk you know so um, and he was a really really solid man he I, I don't think he knew the lord but he would always read from the old testament in hebrew mm -hmm. um and uh you know he loved my he loved my grandmother to death like he like he was very loyal to her um and coming from my household mm -hmm. seeing a man truly love a woman um and the fact that he was an entrepreneur really unaffected me one of the last things he said to me before he died which was really impactful was he said, you know, you're the only one, Jason. And I said, "What? like only what one, Grandpa? And he goes, you're the only one that was an entrepreneur like me. Mm -hmm. And it, it really, like, you know, that, that was one of the last, actually, I think that was the last thing he ever said to me. Yeah. Um, so, and then, and then he said for me to take care of my sister. Yeah. He goes, make sure your sister's always okay. Yeah. And that was it. So, I mean, probably my yeah. biggest influence. Yeah. that's so, cool. Yeah. 
All right, so I know a music career is not always easy. What has been some tough times you have had to push through, and how did those times make you a strong person? And I know we have talked about some of those, so mm -hmm. any, any specific moments? Like maybe after you started making it? Um, yeah, that well, I, I can list a few, but I think you know the, the very first song I landed on a record, the artist um, tried to steal it from me. Mm -hmm. um, it, it became a number one hit, and... Um, at ASCAP back then, it wasn't computer-based. It was all paperwork filed. So the the artist called me when the song went to number one. And I wrote I wrote basically 100% of the song. And the label, when they were putting it on the record, asked me if, you know, if the artist can have a small piece of the song. And it felt really weird. I didn't know the music business at the time. It felt like somebody was trying to take my baby. Mm -hmm. I, got, I got protective, and I said, well... I was like, okay, I know they're trying to get something. So I was like, is 10% okay? And they're like, the head of A&R at the time was like, that's fine, that's fair, you know? And so that was it. When the song went to number one, the artist calls me and says, hey, congratulations, man. And I thought he was calling me up saying he wanted to write with me more. And I was like, so overjoyed and blown away that the artist called me. And, and I was like, yeah. And I was like, we should write together again. And he's like, I'd love to do that, man. And, he, and then he goes, um, but here's the thing, like... You know, this song would not have gone to number one unless I put it on my record. And I've never felt right about the 10%. And, and I, I, I deserve 50% of the song. And I said, well, I feel really uncomfortable about that because we, we made an agreement and I wrote the song. And um, he said, you know, he said one other thing. I said, well, I don't I really feel really uncomfortable right now. And he goes, well, I don't agree. And he hung up on me. Mm. And I was like, well, that went well. <laughs> and we, then... We'll uh, be writing uh, next week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I literally thought that when, when I hung up the phone, I was like, I guess we're not going to be writing more songs together. And um, so, I don't know, it was maybe about like three, four months later, and I had never received a check. And uh, I, I, I believed I probably should, mm -hmm. but I had no idea what the check would be. And I was signed up with ASCAP. So I called up ASCAP, and I was like, hey am i like when would i expect a check like do i get a check and like do you have an idea of like what it would be because i needed i needed finances so bad back then mm -hmm. and they the woman got back on the phone with me she's like well you would get a check if you wrote the song like she's like but you're you're not a writer on the song and i was like i'm not a writer on the song i'm like Who's, who wrote the song and she's like well we have it listed here it's it's just the artist wrote it and in that moment i realized that he knew somebody at ASCAP that threw away my paperwork and refiled paper different paperwork and i my heart sunk and was this a christian song it was wow and you're and not a christian at this time no and i was like wow yeah and i was like wow these people are thieves and these christians are thieves and they're all liars and cheaters and you know of course it was the enemy trying to throw me right. off the, the the bullseye and so that was real stressful it took me about nine months um of begging and pleading and fighting and to get him to switch the paperwork back to what it should have been. Um, and it was nine months of me like clenching my teeth at night and I couldn't wow, sleep well. And, that's crazy. and I was like so stressed out. So that was the first thing. Did and then come back in 9010? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but I had to get real. I mean, I, I finally had like a breakdown and like started threatening people, and, wow. you know, which wasn't good the way I did well, it. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but then uh, when I moved to LA, it got real, real, real bad. I mean, I was working with hip hop artists and mm -hmm. a lot of people in urban music, and you know, I had a few people like just 
you know, on deals like steal money from me or, you know, a guy at Universal tried to convince me to like invest in something with him and he stole my money and and he was a high up guy at Universal, which was really weird. Um, and then um, there was a music producer that Sony had introduced me to that um, on a situation took $100,000 that was supposed to be mine. And uh, I challenged him on it, and I, I was like, you know, I, I you know, we, we know the same people, like, you know, you're, this is crazy. Like, and I, I challenged him pretty hard on it, and he basically said that um, he told me he was gonna um, basically put a bullet in my head, and um, he was a little bit of a scary guy. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember like feeling pretty scared, and I called up a couple of people at record labels, and I was like, this guy just told me he's gonna like put it, basically put a hit out on me. And he's like in the rap world and and um so uh you know i had things like that happen mm-hmm. that were you know pretty scary um and then I, I think probably just the hardest thing was just meeting people whether it was in country music or in pop music and i'm still thankfully i work in those worlds but um but just over the years like meeting a couple of people in country music or pop music that just like I felt like I loved them so dearly um, and they were so charming and I fell for them as people and they just the deception was deep and vast and you know through ways that I could have never seen coming they like massively deceived me and you know either stole from me or um, and and I've always been a relationship person like I really don't care what the financial deal is I just want to have friends in my life like I I, want to I want to have love surrounding me and I want to love people. And so it's always hurt me. Like I've had people where I knew them for 24 years and then they turn around and stole something. Which is interesting, and, right? Go back to the money. Mm-hmm. What, how, what's the word of money can be the root of all evil? Yeah, it's the love of money. Yeah. yeah, the love of money. Yeah. What that, all yeah. those scenarios are around mm-hmm. money. Yeah. And what they can bring out in people. Yeah, know? and I say this to people once in a while, not, not often, but I've said this to people a few times. Like, you know, just... You know, families kill each other over money. Like, husbands kill wives. Wives kill husbands. Like, I mean, you know, uh, you you see the person with a lot of money, and then the brothers and sisters, like, destroy each other over the inheritance. And, you know, it's it's, uh, it it destroys relationships. And for me, my ultimate thing is, um, like, I'm at a point in my life now where, and and I'm not saying this, like, fully literally, but it's like, it's almost like if somebody comes over to my house and they look at my dining room table, which is really not that nice, but if they look at my dining room table and they're like, you know, I want to, I, I want to, st- I want that table. Like, I want what he has. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want to, I'm going to steal that table. Like, I'm just at a point in my life where I'd rather somebody say, like, hey, Jason, I just got to tell you, I had this like crazy desire where, like, I felt like I want to steal your table. Like, and, and I would say, like, well, bro, I love you let's figure out how we get you the table like 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 maybe i give it to you maybe we we now share it like like i'm gonna say i'll go to the ends of earth to keep a relationship but what i find is people don't people don't think that way right so they think if they really told you what they wanted or what they were unhappy about or whatever that you wouldn't give Mm -hmm. it so they plot you know, and and that's what's so painful is because that's what destroys the relationship. Mm-hmm. So I've I've had quite a bit of that in the music industry. Thankfully, in recent years, that hasn't been the case. Is there um, any quick tip you would say of people getting into it to not experience those scenarios? Like, have uh, somebody on your side or somebody that's you know a lawyer or something to where 
all that stuff is well, double I mean, checked. So, so, some I mean, of, although you can't always afford that. Yeah, I mean, I would say probably some, not all, but some of the more rotten people I've met in the music industry were lawyers. Um, so I, I would just say, like, for me, praying deeply mm-hmm. that God protects you and surrounds you with people that love you. But I also think it's about from the depths of your own heart wanting to do the right thing for all people. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you truly desire from the depths of your heart to love people well and serve people and, and, and you're desperate for it, like you're desperate for that wisdom from God and you're you're begging him for it. Like, I want to love people better. I want to serve people better. Like, help me. Like, like I want to radically, I want to blow people's hearts and brains away for you, you know, in love. And like, and, and you know, I think if you're, if you're thirsty for that wisdom, I think God will then, as a blessing, surround you with like people that actually care about you and love you, um, and will 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 see that you love them, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, that 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 that's been that's been it for yeah. me. So, all right. So, out of all the titles you've held in your career thus far, which has brought the most joy to you? Uh, I think being an artist manager. Um, it's probably the hardest mm-hmm. title I've ever had, but uh, I just so deeply, again, it's the relational thing. You know, the artist is the mouthpiece. It's the person that's going to reach the teenager in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. And that's all I want is to reach the teenager in the bedroom. The closest person you can get to that, because I'm not the artist, the closest person you get to that's going to actually be used to reach the person in their bedroom is the artist. So number one, it's exciting to know that I could maybe influence that person that's going to reach the teenager, you know, to um, to, to help guide them to that bedroom, um, mm-hmm. to help protect them as they're going you know, and to reach that person in the bedroom. But then, you know, to be close to that mouthpiece that's going to be used to save somebody's life is so rewarding for me because I get like a front row seat to that human's life. And, you know, I get to almost like be like, in a sense, like family with them. And so I just love being the closest person to an artist because of the relational aspect. And it's like, I know I'm not the artist. I'm not... I was never quite good enough to be the artist. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I kind of get to live vicariously through the artist Mm -hmm. or get to touch that or be front row, you know, managing an artist, you know, at the end of the night when your artist is new and signs autographs or meets people, you know, my favorite thing in the whole world to do if I'm at a show of my artist is to stand with them at the end of the night as they're signing autographs Mm -hmm. or taking pictures. Like, I'm like, it's my favorite thing on the planet when it comes to music because I, I'm like listening to every word people are saying or I'm looking at the little boy's face who's holding on to his mom's leg that can't believe he's about to meet this person or, you know, watching, um, I mean, at a show recently, um, a guy came up to, it was the artist you mentioned when I came yeah. in, He a guy comes up to him about that song you mentioned mm-hmm. and said, uh, you know, I want you to know that um, doctors a few months ago gave me about a year to live mm. of terminal cancer and I want you to know that um, your song is the song that I'm going to leave the earth listening to wow. it's my favorite song it's all I want to listen to lately and I've kind of vowed that I'm going to keep listening to this song until I live, leave here and I'm just like mm. that's it mm. 
mm-hmm. you know like so that's the Super Bowl you know right. I feel like I'm Tom Brady in that moment you know right. um, or the head coach or whatever so probably better said but uh, so that's, yeah that's it is it is really amazing just hearing those stories about really how much music can impact people mm-hmm. like it's pretty amazing alright so uh, let's talk about the Joneses for a minute they seem to always be doing a bit better than most even though we normally have no clue how they got there why do so many struggle to compare themselves to the Joneses? What can you share that will help people gain perspective so they are content with where they're at now? Well, I'll say as a male, um, I can't really speak so much for females in this area, but for as a male, I was this way. And I've been around some other young males that were this way. And there's such a common, when, you, when I was younger, I'll, I'll just focus on me, when I was younger, in my 20s there was such pressure on me that i had to figure my life out you know and i had to figure out how am i going to eventually become a provider which is crazy because from your story you didn't have a whole lot of support in trying to figure it out right right and so you know i got to a point the reason why i started hiking was i saw one day i didn't know god but i saw a dead end i was like in my apartment writing a song and I looked up and it was the first time in my life I ever got a vision and the vision at 22 years old was a dead end sign and I knew that it was like my life and it scared me so bad and, and in that moment I thought you know I'm never going to be able to afford to have a wife I'm never going to be able to afford to have a house I'm never going to have the white picket fence in my life I'm always going to be struggling and I'm going to be alone the rest of my life and and um, I was scared that's what led me to start hiking but there was such a pressure to make a living and there was such a pressure to become a provider that could be like a real you know a man of a household i've just because that is comparison you know you're looking at older men or men that figured it out or guys that came 10 years before you 20 years before you and you're like well they have a house and they've got cars and they have a wife and they even have a dog you know and they seem like they got to kind of have it all, you know? And I used to look at men like that and I couldn't really comprehend fully. And I, I, I'm at times in my life, I've been a real slow learner, but I couldn't comprehend Jason, like young Jason, like 20 year old Jason. This dude has been doing this for 19 years more than you. Like, of course he's got, he's been saving money for 19 years. Like, or he's been making mistakes and learning from them for 19 years. Of, of course he's got, this huge house and you live in a rundown apartment you know with duct tape on your back car window you know like and he drives the 500 mercedes but all i would do is i'd look at that and be like that's what i want that's what i want that's what i want when i was 19 years old i used to sit there and say like how do i make a hundred thousand dollars a year how do i make a hundred thousand i gotta make a hundred thousand dollars a year and um and it you know as a non-believer back then, it led me to a place that was very dangerous, um, spending-wise, not managing money, not saving money correctly, um, and then it led me to bend often morally. You know, in my twenties, not knowing the Lord, desperate to try to figure out how to make a living, like you know, um, just morally and character-wise, like. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was pretty blind, but it 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 was not good, mm. you know. And it and I definitely 
hurt people along the way. Um, I don't think super badly, but like I definitely hurt some people along the way. It, it was so unintentional mm-hmm. because I was so focused not on people. I was focused on the the goal of where I wanted to get. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I've learned to do is is just literally focus on people. Mm-hmm. You know, like am I treating somebody correct? Am I lo- am I keeping my word? You know, I had somebody the other day hit me up and say, "Hey, you said on this with this producer on this project, <clears throat> you were going to give me a commission on the project." And I was like, I, I literally at first I was like, I really don't remember saying that. And I love this person, and um, and but there's this little seed in the back of my head that's like, I kind of think we had mm-hmm. one conversation like that. But I think he was trying to like lead me to say something like that. I think I said maybe I, I'll try to get you something if I can. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was a lot looser than how he's presenting it. And I just was like, you know what? And I, I just responded to him. I said, look, uh, like, what do you want on the project? Mm-hmm. And he, and and I built it up real big. Like, oh, he's gonna ask me for all this crazy stuff. And mm-hmm. and he came back and he was asking me for like like a peanut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was like. Oh, like, dude, come on. Like, you know, but um, I don't know, probably 15 years ago, I probably would have been like, dude, go take a hike, right. you know, get, get out of here, you know. But I think I've just tried to rest and settle and like, you know, am I doing the right thing for a person? Do I love people? If that other guy over there, you know, has millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, I really don't even care. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I've, I've had that in my life and it did not produce any kind of happiness. Mm-hmm. I know that if somebody has $5 million sitting in your bank account more than I do, that's not really, that, that's not going to bring any extra joy or peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I don't really desire any more what people have. I just, I'm, I'm able, only because I've been doing this for so long and right. I've had so many successes and failures and I've messed up and I've done right things. And so I'm just at a point where I'm just completely open handed. I don't care where I land. I, I, I don't need to be the man. I mm-hmm. I don't need to be seen in situations. And then, and then, and also, too, I've had a lot of experiences where sometimes in, in a certain project, I'm the leader. Or I am the man. And then the next project I'm involved in, I'm like the dude filling up the Gatorade for like the football team, you know? And I mean, like when I worked for Dolly Parton's management company years ago, it sounds really cool to say it. And I did have a pretty high up title. But in that in that um, ladder, you know, I was not at the top. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was not the decision maker. I, I did not run things. Um I, I helped things, you know, but I, I had one role in that company and I did it. And um, uh, so, and, and, and Dolly's, you know, manager was like killing it, you know, and, and is still killing it. Um, and so, like, you know, not many people have ever had, you know, a massive legend that they're right. handling, you know, right. who, who's bringing in insane amounts of money just by like, rolling out of bed in the morning Mm -hmm. um so like i i saw that but i also saw a man that was literally killing himself Mm. i mean his face was always bright red he always looked like 
I mean, he was so intense, and his whole life was Dolly, and there was a part of it where I was like, there's such an intensity here. There's so, there's it's so fast paced. Um, you know, I don't really want what he has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I'd want it if you offered it to me. So um, I'm I'm very rested in whatever God has for me. Um, if one day I'm like getting coffee for Jesse, <laughs> that's my job. Like like I really don't care. You know, like wherever God wants me, I'm gonna go. Mm-hmm. You know, wherever He wants me to serve, I'm gonna serve. And, yeah, uh, so. I, I like. I think it's a you know kind of a daily perspective check. Yeah, of like why am I doing this? You know, mm-hmm. and like pulling yourself out of the <clears throat> out of the rat race of the moment of you know even mm-hmm. like checking your your uh, your attitude in the scenario. It's like why am I getting that uptight? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, would help. But yeah, I always found the the whole comparison of the Joneses an interesting thing. You know, I remember at one point I'm like, man, how does he have this house and this and this mm-hmm. and and I think I ended up asking through a couple people, and it's like, oh, he inherited this, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. and it totally changes the perspective. Yeah, of, you know, and and, and uh, obviously not always, but sometimes you know you get to know the guy with the big house well enough, and you realize that he's doing something illegal to have the big house. Oh yeah, right. Or Which is where you said the whole bending thing. Yeah, or he's stealing from people to get right. the big house. Um, I mean, I, I know some managers um, in this town that have crazy houses, and they have you know yachts and and mm. um, and you know I would say that the industry may view them a little shady or whatever, but like I actually know like they're they're taking money from artists that the artists aren't aware of, mm-hmm. you know, and it's right. like and, oh, yeah. and it's like. Okay, I mean, I don't really don't want a house that bad, mm-hmm. you know. So, anyway. So, how has the music business changed over the last decade, and what does the future hold for it? Uh, I think, um, I mean, from my end uh, with managing artists, developing artists, um, I, I just think that it's gone from. I think in my role, it's gone from, you know, taking an artist, trying to get the right song. And I have one play, and that is, I have to walk into all the labels, and I've got you know, ten to thirty meetings, and I have to convince one, one at least one person to to jump a little bit across the desk. And if I can get one person to flinch, mm-hmm. I call all the other labels and let them know. And and hey, like I was at Larry Rares, the dude flinch for a second. You you right. might want to re- you, you, you you might want to look at this project. Remember you told me you, you didn't think it was that good? Well, this dude at Atlantic Records just looked like, you know, he saw something. All right, right. Really? Let me play it for my boss, you know. And then I call the other guy and hey, he's playing it for his boss. I would flinch harder than you flinched, you know. And I, I mean that that's you know, and then and then once the artist had a record deal, really working it hard. Mm-hmm. But now nowadays because of the internet, you know, um, you have other avenues. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like we have an artist that we're, you know, been de- working with and developing for close to a couple of years that Jesse works a lot with, and and he's like killing it with. But like, you know, where that artist is, you know, getting a lot of attention and having victories, and you know, we just got something in yesterday that the artist made close to ten thousand dollars on something, and they're not signed yet but they're getting courted by people in the industry and so um i think there's a lot more room with the internet to build things so if the label doesn't jump right away you can actually build build a real story it's a little bit easier than just playing your local area and trying to get 
400 kids in a club pumping their fists. Right. For me, I mean, I think it's all about the delivery of it, you know? I mean, it went from compact disc to now streaming or cassette tapes from streaming. So, but to me, it's all the same. You know, it's it's at the end of the day, like, if you don't have the right song, you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. Um, If the artist can't carry the weight of the song, you don't really have much past the song. Um, It's about artists torturing their craft and getting coached up. You know, I view myself probably more like a coach at this point. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, once you hit success, mm-hmm. you know, how do you maintain it? And it's just more, you know, more great songs, more coaching right. up, you know, bec- you challenge yourself every record to become even better. So you know. when, a, when an artist is, you know, I, I guess, what's the percentage that an artist makes the money? Is it the live shows? Is it mm-hmm. their selling or you know what I mean like, I mean it's it's pretty much all live shows and merchandise okay. at, at least at least in the first you know years um, uh, you know there is money to be made on publishing um, radio play there's money to be made on licensing um, like the artist you mentioned when, when I walked in he's had one song that's made over a couple hundred thousand dollars in the last six months just from TV and film licensing placements mm-hmm. um, so um, uh, but but I think you know that publishing piece grows as the songs keep coming, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean if you're if you're one of those artists out there that have the the ten to fifteen big hits out there, I mean you're still making a lot of money a year just off of your publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as a newer artist on your first or second record, if you are hitting, it's more your show guarantees and and selling merch at your shows and and which could be you know. A lot more money than most people think in the beginning. Right, if, the if 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 it's hitting on any kind of level, so. And I also think you know how the music industry is changing. I think eventually, I mean, the biggest change I see is that um, over the next several years, I don't think it's going to happen super quick. But I think um, FM radio is going to eventually die, and I think the app is going to become. The place where you consume your favorite radio station or your local radio station. I think everything's going to become on your phone. Everything's going to be the app. And I think mm-hmm. the car is going to become eventually self-driving. So there's going to be more entertainment options in the car. Um, like, you know, I think in your car, you'll be able to eat eventually and you'll probably have a refrigerator in there and it'll be kind of be like an RV, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think you'll be able to watch TV. Um, and uh, over the, I, I don't think it's happening in the next five years or maybe even 10 years, but I think that's where it's going. So I think um, once the app thing keeps growing and the technology of the self-driving car keeps getting stronger, I think it will become much less about radio. Um, but I don't think radio is dying anytime soon, mm-hmm. but I think that that's probably the big, big shift that will happen. Isn't, uh, isn't Musk, and he's supposedly going to be able to provide everybody with uh, internet or Wi-Fi or something like that? Have you heard something like that? Uh, Somebody said sure. that he's got satellites up there that... yeah. Are going to be able to provide. I'm like that'd be great because then I could listen to all the music I wanted to on yep. any platform. Yeah. Unlimited. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I do think, I don't know how many years it's going to take. I don't know if it's 20 years, but I I do think, eventually they'll have systems with the self-driving piece where, mm-hmm. there's two or three backup systems to each system. So if, 
if something glitches, there's a backup system. If that glitches, there's a third backup. System. So the car will never glitch. Right. And right. there will never be a glitch in the system. And I, I just think eventually it's going to get to a point where everything you would do in a in a traveling RV or you know or even maybe even at home you could do in, inside of your vehicle and you're not gonna have to pay attention to the road right so uh, I think you know that'll shift how people consume music quite a bit yeah all right so what wisdom can you share when a person is trying to pursue music but they still need to keep a part-time job to pay the bills so even mm. with a lot of what you talked about how much is that balance of going okay maybe I'm pushing too hard in this mm. you know time and maybe I need the part time mm. but it's because I also think about like in real estate it's like if you really want to do well in mm. real estate you need to be in it 100% yeah so even though sometimes it takes time to get there it's like so what would you advise to all these people on the jump into mm. the industry I think like the the big desire of most aspiring artists is to put out content maybe play shows but i think so much of that is premature like i would i would i would rather like if i had a son or daughter pursuing this i'd be like if you want to make it of music lock yourself in your bedroom and spend eight hours a day working on your voice torturing your voice killing yourself on your voice killing yourself on songwriting you know, become a songwriter, like bleed as a song, like live, breathe, eat, and sleep, be a songwriter, play multiple, like just die to the craft of music, die, how well can you own this instrument inside of your throat, you know, um, and become the greatest singer that you could ever become, become the best songwriter that you could possibly become, become the best musician you could possibly become. Um, start then start performing as much as you possibly can while you're still torturing your craft and I think if you do all that you know you would be one of the better the better talents out there mm -hmm. and it would be very hard for people to turn away but like you know w we met a couple the other day thanks to Jesse um, a, a, a married duo and um, they're playing 150 shows a year traveling the country um, they book all their own shows. They are making about eighty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a year doing it, but they are literally, literally killing themselves mm -hmm. to make that living. Um, the wife is like, you know, I don't know how much longer I could do this. Um, and their voices are not great. Mm -hmm. Their voices are not pro level. They could be, like, they have the potential to be, but their vocals are not pro level. Their songwriting is not pro level. So the 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 cake you know in this business is how well can you sing and how good of a song do you have mm -hmm. and those are the things that they missed because of the desire to like get out there makes sense and i think having the patience to say you know what i'm not gonna put out anything i'm gonna i'm gonna sit in my room hibernate i'm gonna incubate mm -hmm. this craft and i'm gonna become so mind-blowing that people can't deny me and um, I just don't see a lot of that. I see a lot of, you know, the artist wants to get in the studio. They want to record things because it's fun. They want to put out songs. They're precious about their songs. They think everything they write is great. They they want people to hear it. They want they want to be releasing stuff all the time. They want to get out there and perform. And and it's like you miss the part about mm -hmm. locking yourself in a room and coming out seven years later. <laughs> 
yeah. you know, like, yeah. and you're like the best singer anyone's ever heard. Well, it makes sense um, because it's like if because you know I think about a lot of people talk about when you get to Nashville, you know, work at like going to songwriter nights, meeting people, mm-hmm. right? But then it also that you make me think about um, be prepared for that opportunity. Yes, because if you never focused on that, once you finally get mm-hmm. that moment, and now you, your voice actually sucks, so now you got to go back. You might have missed that one opportunity because you weren't prepared for it. Yep, a hundred percent. And then you know, and the, and the aspiring artists wonder, you know, why. You know, why do you have to? Which is part of the business. It's part of reality. Like you know, but if you want to wonder how how you maybe don't have to pay for things mm-hmm. out there or pay for less things out there, I mean, just show up as a freak of nature vocalist. Mm-hmm. You know, like open your mouth and have it be the most amazing thing that people have heard, and then you know, seas start parting for you. You know, um, but without that, people are like, you know, I don't know if this person's going to make it. I mean, this is going to be an uphill battle, mm-hmm. and and it's unfair to expect that somebody who's it's really unfair in life to expect if you haven't put in the work that somebody's going to have to go on this uphill battle journey with you for the next two to five years. Maybe you make it, maybe you don't, mm-hmm. and expect that they're going to do that for free. It's actually really unfair. But if somebody shows up and they open up their voice and they've really tortured their craft and it's like one of the coolest voices you've heard in a long time, which really you can't get to without working on your craft, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot easier for somebody to say, you know what, this is going to be work, but this is not going to be the biggest uphill battle I've ever faced. You know, I, I can forgo a few months of not making money and present this to a few labels and see what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's the singer that shows up that you're like... I mean, I, I think I would dive in with you, but th- this thing is like three, four, five years away. Mm-hmm. Like, you want me to work now? Like, y- you want me to help? You want me to hold your hand? Like, so um, I think the more you could do on your own is going to position you better for when you meet people in the industry. Mm-hmm. And parents be supportive. Yeah. While they're honing their craft. Yeah, right? yeah. As much as they can. Yeah. All right, so you have a lot going on from what it sounds like. Uh, your mind is always running as well, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you discern what to pursue next and what you need to let go of? You know, it's cool. I'm, I'm in like a really cool season where for many, many, many years I was trying all these different things and running in all, in all these different directions. And I, I feel like I'm finally at a place where I'm like resting. Which is funny because as I read that, mm-hmm. I thought that because you kind of alluded mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. So elaborate too when you were in that season with people that are there. How do they turn on and off and know what to pursue? Uh, when they were running. Yeah, uh, like when you were there, yeah. now you're kind of like. I think so much for I think so much for me is the people that surround me now. I mean, I, I really feel like you know on our team, you know, Jesse's like one of one of the leads of that team but it's like i feel like on that team like the team we have now for me it feels like god literally like dropped angels around me and i'm like surrounded by angels like that's the way i feel and um i i it's hard for me to even understand like how that's even possible on this earth um but i feel like that's been a huge part of me resting is just like 
I have a thought sometimes, and this is like probably the craziest thought ever. It's probably the dumbest thought ever, but I'm just going to say it. Mm-hmm. I have this thought sometimes, and, and I don't, I don't really like this thought, by the way. Um, I, often, every time I think this, I'm like, why, 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 why is that in my head? Right, like that's a terrible thought. But uh, this is so bizarre, um, being very vulnerable. But you know. I'm just at a place where it's like, I don't know what's coming tomorrow in business. I don't know if the people that are surrounding me are going to be surrounding me. Um, But what I do feel is if I'm ever again in my life going to have somebody take something from me or deceive me or steal from me, I just want it to be somebody that I could actually say, which is probably the most bizarre comment ever, but it goes through my head where, you know, I'd be okay if it was that person. Because I love them that much, you know. Like I, I, and and I'd hope with, with whatever they took that they killed it out there, you know. Like, not that I want them to do that to somebody else, but mm-hmm. there's just people surrounding me these days where I'm like, man, if if that would happen years ago, happened to me again, I think I'd actually feel okay about it because I just, I feel like I've seen such a love from them mm-hmm. that I've never experienced from anybody else. Um, so that's probably, you know, but I, I, I think just trying to find high, high, high character people, mm-hmm. it's really hard to find that when you're struggling and scraping because it's so hard to make it. And, you know, you bump into people that look like they can offer you something and it's just so hard to like not take what they can offer you mm-hmm. or not partner up and try something cause you're struggling. Um, I don't know how to avoid that other than just from the depths of your heart praying to God and asking him to surround you with great people. But I do feel like the people that surround me today are God answering prayers from many years ago. And I think, you know, um, vulnerably I say that my heart was not ready to receive the people that were around me today. Like I think God was like, I still have some more work to do with you and your heart. Um, to prepare you to be loving enough mm-hmm. to the people that I'm with. Like, because the, these people I'm going to surround you with, Jason, like, they deserve to be r- really deeply loved. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if from your upbringing and right, the things you've been through, that, right? if you're even healthy enough for those people right, right now. Yeah. And so I think I had to grow with God. He had to work on me for, you know, years. And obviously, I'm still not there. I'm still not perfect. But, uh, but I, I think I wasn't where I needed to be to even be able to receive that love and give it back in even like the right way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. That's but, good. but I would say like to focus on prayer and working on praying that God makes you personally healthy enough to receive the, the depths of love that he wants to surround you with. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are, he'll surround you with it. And to me, that's where rest comes from. Yeah. 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 That's, that's some great, great wisdom. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, how'd you meet your wife, and how'd you propose? I met my wife. I was on Match.com. Okay. Uh, I'm, I don't really go out at all. I'm very quiet, and I'm very, like, shy when it comes to, like, females. Like, I, I don't really pursue, mm-hmm. you know. And Match.com, I had tried years ago when I wasn't saved. And um, when I wasn't saved, it was, like, the most cool thing ever because I was like, this is, like, a this is like softball. Like these girls are paying to meet me. Like this is the greatest thing ever. Um, like I know they're, I know they're 
single. I know they want to meet somebody, like the greatest thing ever. Um, and then when I got saved, I didn't know I was supposed to go to church. Um, I just found Jesus and started reading the Bible. So I, I was like, how am I going to meet somebody? And so I went on Match.com and I searched, you know, are there any people that like checked off Christian? And is there anybody in their bio that said that they, that they love God? And so I was looking for the Christian checkbox, and I was looking for a sentence in their bio that said, I love God. And I went through hundreds, and I only found one girl that said she loved God, and it was check. So I wrote to her very desperately, because I thought I only had one. I thought 500 guys probably have messaged her. So I said, I, I, I was like, I please, I'm begging you to meet you. Like, five minutes, coffee. I don't care if you have a boyfriend. I won't, I, I'm cool. Like, I, just, I feel like I'm supposed to meet you. Um, she wrote back instantly, which shocked me. Right, because that didn't sound desperate. No, yeah, and uh, so she wrote back instantly, and she goes, "Sure, I'll meet you for coffee," and then that, that ended up being one of my wife's best friends. Oh, okay. And uh, we met, and it was in, funny. and it was obvious over coffee when we met that there was not a connection. Mm-hmm. We were like almost looking at each other, like, "There's nothing here, right?" Like, "Nah, there's nothing here." But, like, this is cool hanging out. And right. we should hang out. So we started hanging out. And she's like, you got to meet my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, you got to meet this guy that I know. And we tried to hook, blind date, hook them up. And the whole time we were hanging out, trying to hook my friend up and her friend up, I was like, my friend is the luckiest dude on planet Earth. This girl's, like, the greatest girl ever. And it turned out they had no connection. And I, I, I was realizing I needed to go to church. I'd never been to church. And so this girl was a Christian mm-hmm. and I said, you know, where do you go? She's like, I'm in between churches, but that girl that you met, my friend, she might want to take you. Mm-hmm. So Heather, my wife took me to church for the first time and uh, started helping grow my relationship in God. And that felt priceless to me. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I was like, I want you to give her your entire world, like sacrifice for her, give her everything. Like, what is she giving to you? She's giving you heaven and earth. Like, if she needs something, even if you're not dating her, give her whatever she needs. And so um, we started hanging out every day for months. Um, I didn't want anything or expect anything because God told me not to. And um, we were just hanging out as friends, but I liked her a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, she eventually told me she liked me, which I couldn't believe. Um, And then how I proposed to her was um, uh, back from my California days when I had a lot. somebody had uh, taken a few things from me that that were of very high value. Um, and I got a call from a Beverly Hills pawn shop that said, hey, just want to let you know, uh, the person that took that stuff from you, they sold it here. And they told me that, you know, I should call you and that you might want to buy it back. So, you know, you might be the easiest sale I have to get rid of this stuff. Wow. <clears throat> you want to buy it back? And, and it was it was two items that meant a lot to me. And uh, it really hurt me that, that the person took it. That he didn't actually give it back to you. R- right. To the right. And so I was like, well, how much do you want for it? And they set a price, and it was like a really, re- really reasonable price. So I was like, yeah, you know what? I'll buy it back. And... Um, and I didn't even tell him like I was close to getting engaged. And Heather had told me the kind of ring that she wanted if we ever were to get engaged. Like there was a shape of a ring that was really important to her. 
And so I'm on the phone with this guy, and out of nowhere, he goes, by the way, I'm just spreading the word, you know, anybody that comes in the shop or anybody I talk to, I've got this diamond ring here. If you ever know anybody, I was like, well, what kind of diamond ring is it? And he goes, well, it's it's an engagement ring. And, and uh, I was like, huh. I was like, well, tell me more about it. And he's describing what Heather said she wanted as a ring. And he, and he goes, here's the thing. He's like, I had this appraise. He's on the phone with me. He's like, I had an appraise. He's like, what I'm selling it for is it's it's worth double. You know, um, like it would cost you double in a jewelry store. And he's like, I'd be willing to sell, send it to you and you could go get it appraised for very cheap. And they'll tell you it's worth double than what I'd sell it to you for. And, um, and, uh, and I, it was, it was like really inexpensive. And so I was like, could you send it to me? And, um, I got it. I opened it up. Um, I think it was like the next day I had an appointment to get it appraised. They appraised it, told me it was worth double. So um, I just went basically like from the appraiser and I showed up at, I'm like so impatient. So I just went to Heather's apartment and I was like, I have a ring. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do, you, do you want the ring? I mean, it was like the most non-romantic thing ever. Um, and uh She's like, yeah, and I was like, I probably should get on one knee, right? And she's like, probably. So, uh, so I got on one knee, and she was in her pajamas and proposed. And she said yes. Yeah, yeah. And the ring was perfect for her. And, oh, 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 and the crazy part yeah. is, it fit her finger perfectly. Really? Never needed to be sized. Same shape and everything. She was like, yep, for. yep. I guess God can work in mysterious ways, right? Yeah. Hopefully you gained some great insights into the music industry by hearing some of Jason Davis's wisdom. And uh, make sure to tune in, I want to say next week, but it might not be next week. Um, I definitely, I got about uh, 13 interviews um, being edited, so I do plan to uh, probably after the first of the year to have uh, consistent content uh, put out weekly that's going to be the goal i'll probably be able to get ryan's out sooner than that um anyways uh, again thanks for uh staying subscribed and if uh you know anybody else that might have interest in listening to uh some of nashville people's stories that are making an impact um, make sure to share this with your friends and family and i hope that you have a great christmas season until next time We hope you've enjoyed listening to Nashville Untold with Andrew Buckwalter. We encourage you to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. To be a guest on the show or to share your thoughts, send us an email to podcast at andrewbuckwalter.com. Until next time, 